Church. On the web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, Star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a call-in uh, opportunity for our listening audience. If you have a particular question or issue that you are facing in your life and you'd like biblical counsel on, or maybe some passage of scripture that is puzzling or challenging or difficult that you'd like to discuss, feel free to call us locally. The number is 525-1859 for our internet listeners. And we have a lot of people who listen on the internet, not just live, but after it's broadcast. And that number is 877. Our call letters, WAGP980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to Deb, who's taking phone calls this morning. As Rick, it's always, it's great to be here, and uh, let's get started. I know we've had a lot of email questions that have come in. Uh, we'll give live callers, as always, preference, but let's begin uh, with uh, some of the questions that have come in this morning. All right, indeed, we do have a listener from Raleigh that writes um, that they're confused about the demoniac that Jesus healed. Why did he not let him follow? Why did Jesus destroy the business of the herders by casting the demons into the swine? Well, it's a, it's an interesting passage of Scripture, and uh, the Lord did indeed uh, to visibly demonstrate the exorcism of, of the demons, cast them into the swine, and some 2,000 pigs r- ran headlong right into the sea. You can go to that place there on the Sea of Galilee or the Gennesaret, Lake of Gennesaret. Um, and as you go there, there is a certain section right here where this town would have been, where as the pigs would have walked down the hill, there's like momentum where there's no turning back. They would have just run headlong and been drowned into the sea just as they were. Uh, it's interesting because uh, these people didn't really have their priorities in order. Uh, after the Lord Jesus did that, this man who had been a plague, and really there was not one man, but, but two man, two men. Uh, Matthew gives us a fuller account. Luke indicates just one, but there were two, probably one more vocal, maybe more violent, 
uh, more well-known than the other, but there were two men that Jesus cast the demons out of that day. Uh, They were called legion. And so there were thousands of them. Roman legion was uh, 6,000 men. And so uh, appropriately called, and at least 2,000 of them uh, went into pigs and were drowned in the sea. In either case, uh, the word legion just means many, not that there had to be 6,000, but there were indeed many demons in this man. And he was so violent, they couldn't even keep him uh, chained. He would break his chains. And there was incredible strength uh, that demon possession brings. Angels are stronger and mightier than men, the Bible teaches. An angel of the Lord uh, moves a 2,000-pound uh, t- uh, t- rock there at the tomb of the Lord Jesus. It's estimated to be approximately that size. Um, but they are stra- strong, and that's not only true of God's holy and elect angels, but also of fallen angels as well. And so what's so fascinating is that after the Lord does this miracle, you would have thought that people would have fallen on their face and say, Messiah is here. Look what he's done. Uh, Thank God that, you know, he has come not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Some think these people were Jewish. I doubt it. The area that he's speaking of uh, was in the Decapolis. It was a Gentile area right over the edge uh, uh, into the Decapolis, into the ten cities, they were Gentile cities, and so some would say, "Well, he destroyed the pigs because these were Jews, and they were herding swine when they shouldn't have." I don't think so. I think the Lord was basically showing that, you know, demons are evil, vicious; they need to be dealt with. There was a visible display that they were literally cast out, and they should have turned to the Lord, but they were more interested in the here and now. They were this life only people. Uh, they were only interested in their local uh, pocketbooks and not really the things that were of eternal nature. And so it was a subtle rebuke. The Lord, I think, among other things, is the Lord of glory and the sovereign king was revealing what these people's hearts were like. And uh, you would have hoped they would have repented, but they didn't. There's no indication that they did. He sent them home because uh, that's where really all evangelism starts, in your home, And what a testimony he would have been in his home and to his family and to even the neighbors around his home, because here's a man who was under the control of demons for years, totally out of control, but now uh, clothed and in his right mind, the text says. Uh, So that would have been a powerful testimony and an ongoing witness to these people. The Lord loved these people and cared about them and God's patience and long-suffering Uh, goes for a long time, but his patience will someday give way to his wrath. So God wasn't done with these people, and he left them a visible testimony and reminder of the fact that Messiah indeed had come. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. And a listener in Los Angeles writes, I have a friend who says he found an error in the Bible. He said that Matthew 9.18 and Mark 5.22 contradict each other. I know there are no errors, he continues. Can you help me answer him? Thank you for your ministry. Let me just turn there first. uh, Let me read uh, Matthew 9 in verse 18, and then we'll read uh, Mark 5 in verse 22. I know not everyone listening to me has the benefit of a Bible in front of them as I do. Uh, We read here in Matthew 9 in verse uh, 18, Uh, We're we're told, while he was saying these things to them, behold, there came a synagogue official 
and bowed down before him, saying, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So that's Matthew 9.18. Uh, this is uh, the synagogue official there in Capernaum, and he uh, falls in his face, and he says, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her that she might live. So a man of great faith. In Mark 5, in verse 22, he's back in Capernaum. Uh, they had been on the other side in the Decapolis where the Gerasene demoniac was, and they crossed back over. And, and this is, by the way, um, fits perfectly the geography. If you've been to Israel, to the Sea of Galilee, and you go to Capernaum and you go directly across, and there is the, the Gerasene uh, the Gar- g- the regions of the Gadarenes and where the Gerasene demoniac would have been cast out. But it reads a little bit differently. It's, uh, it's interesting. It says, And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet and entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may live and get well. And then, of course, it goes on to describe um, uh, that, and he went off with him, and a great multitude was following him and pressing on him. And a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and had not been helped at all, but rather had grown worse after hearing about Jesus came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak for she thought if I just touch his garments I shall get well and immediately the flow of her blood had dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction and immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeded from him had gone forth turned around in the crowd and said who touched my garments and his disciples said you see the multitude pressing on you you say who touched me And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell before him and told him the whole truth. And he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. And then it picks up. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And of course, he, he goes there to the, um, Jairus' home, takes Peter, James, and John uh, with him into the room. Uh, the people are crying and weeping, and uh, he says, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, arise. And of course, she immediately gets up, and the people are just absolutely astounded. So the, the, the point of rub here is between the two accounts, and of course there are no contradictions in the Bible. They only complement one another, but I did a course on bibliology, and I did a section on that course called uh, Alleged Contradictions in the Bible, and I went through about 100, about 100 alleged contradictions, and each and every one has a clear explanation as to what took place. So in Matthew's account in Matthew 9, he says, my daughter's just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Where when you read Mark's account, it just seems to read a little bit differently. One of the synagogue officials came up and upon seeing him fell at his feet and said, my daughter is at the point of death. So one says she had died. The other said he's at the point of death. Well, when you look at 
Mark's account and Matthew's account, uh, one is much more extensive than the other. Mark's account is much more verbose than that of Matthew's account that is very, very short. So Matthew is giving the summary of what took place. But if you put it together carefully, it's clear what happened and how it happened. What would have happened in chronological order is Jairus would have come up and fallen on his feet, fallen at Jesus' feet and said, my, my daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her. Then the woman with the hemorrhage uh, would have been healed. Then Jairus' servants would have come to him and said, uh, you're, don't bother him anymore. Your, your daughter's dead. And then Matthew picks it up at that point. My, my daughter has just died. So he doesn't deal with the first encounter, only with the second encounter. And so uh, there's an easy way to reconcile the, the two accounts. Matthew is just dealing with Jairus's um, request after she had died, where Mark gives a much fuller. Mark's account, if you look at it, I don't know what the exact number of words are, but it's about twice as long as Matthew's account. And the, the tense, too, that he uses to describe the woman who's hemorrhaged is uh, past perfect. So it's like a flashback in terms of what had already happened. So Jairus comes, falls on his face. Lord, my daughter's on her deathbed. Please come. The woman is healed uh, with the hemorrhage. The servants come. They tell Jairus she's now dead. Then he falls on his face again and says, Lord, please come. Lay your hands on her that, her, that, that she might live. So Matthew's account is shorter. Mark's is fuller. They don't contradict. They just compliment. Great question. Really good question. Appreciate it. Uh, let's go to the next one, the local number, 525-1859, if you want to call in. Or you can email us, as many have, at TBL for the Bible line at net. Scott from Springfield writes, I have heard it pointed out in Matthew 24 that when Jesus says that no one stone will be left on another concerning the temple, and that because of verse 34, uh, that first verse was verse 2, that this complete destruction was supposed to take place within their generation, that the Bible is wrong due to only a partial destruction which left the Western Wall in existence, not to mention that Jesus' second coming also wasn't within their generation. Would you please address this? Well, there's uh, a couple of issues going on here in really two questions that are being asked. Uh, In Matthew 24, it says, Jesus came out from the temple was going away when his disciples came to point uh, the temple buildings to him. And he said, you know, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And then they're sitting uh, on the Mount of Olives, and question number two comes. And the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us then, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And then he goes on and he begins to describe the signs as they will unfold. And really the parallels which you find in the book of of Revelation in verse 15, he speaks of the uh, abomination of, of desolation that will happen right in the middle of the tribulation. Then he picks up with the events in the second half of the tribulation And then he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So this uh, person who's telling you that there is a mistake here in the Bible 
just is not a very careful reader, nor do they have really any understanding of the Temple Mount and how it was actually constructed. If you had gone uh, on the Temple Mount prior to uh, Herod's reconstruction, it would have looked more like a, 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 a mountaintop with uh, some, you know, ups and downs in the geography and in the landscape. And what, what Herod did, Herod the Great, is he built a retaining wall all the way around the Temple Mount. And it's huge. Um, in fact, when you go to the Western Wall there in Israel and you see that wall, it used to be called the Wailing Wall. They uh, used to call it the Wailing Wall because there was a time when Israel didn't have access to the Temple Mount. Uh, the 67 War changed all that. And so now it's called the Western Wall because it's the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, not of the Temple and there's a big difference. So what he did is he built this huge retaining wall, and you only see about a third of it visibly. The other two-thirds are actually below the ground. And now when you go to Israel, you can actually tour the tunnels. They call them the rabbi tunnels. And you can see the lower portion of the wall that for years no one ever saw. The first time I went to Israel in the 1980s, uh, there was no availability to go there. And they've unfolded all of this, archaeologists, and it's just really absolutely amazing to see the project and the size of the stones and what uh, Herod the Great uh, pulled off in creating this uh, this walled temple mount. And so what he did is he, he put these four walls all the way around the temple mount and then filled it all in with dirt and created a level platform at the top. And then on the top, what we call the Temple Mount, he built, uh, he reconstructed the temple. And it was, uh, some people would call it the third temple. Most would just call it the second temple. But in one sense, um, because the temple never stopped functioning a single day, and it was just reconstructed, most just prefer to use the terminology of the second temple. But it's a total rebuild. And so when Jesus said that not one stone will stand upon the other, he's not talking about the retaining wall. He's talking about the temple itself. That's their question. They point the temple out to him and he says, not one stone shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And that's exactly what happened. And history documents that when Titus Vespucian came in in 70 AD, uh, he seized uh, Jerusalem and uh, eventually destroyed the temple, burned it, and as it heated up, uh, what happened is literally the gold melted, all the gold in the temple, and it was uh, dripped down between the rocks. And the Roman soldiers literally pried apart each and every single rock to get the gold uh, that had gone between those rocks. And just as Jesus had predicted, not a single stone would stand upon another. So that's the first thing. And what Jesus does here is what prophets were supposed to do. Jesus, in his, in his public ministry, as you read it, gave not just long-term prophecies, but short-term prophecies as well. And so uh, God had predicted uh, through Moses that this would happen uh, in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, he, he, he makes this statement. He says, for those nations which you shall dispossess, listen 
to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners, but is for you. The Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so he speaks of this coming prophet. And of course, Jesus fulfilled all the ministries of Messiah. There are three offices that Messiah had, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus filled all three. And if you go on and you read um, this uh, passage in Deuteronomy 18, he gives us the marks and signs of a true prophet. I mean, if I tell you I'm a prophet of God and, and I want to tell you what's going to happen 300 years from now, uh, you don't really have any um, sustained credibility uh, from me to embrace what I'm saying because no one's going to be around in 300 years uh, to prove whether my words were here or not. And we'll, we'll all be dead who would listen to that prophecy. And so what a prophet had to do is he had to give not only a long-term prophecy, but he had to give short-term prophecies as well. And that's what Jesus does throughout his public ministry. He not only looks way down the road to the end of the age in this chapter, but he looks just a few years in front of him. And he predicts what is going to happen to the temple region and uh, to the temple itself up there in the temple of Mount, on the Temple Mount. Then he goes on and then he talks about what will happen at the end of time. So at the end of time, he describes all the things that will happen and it culminates with his glorious return that's described here in verse 29. When the sun will not, will not shine, it will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And that's when he makes his statement, Truly I say to you, this generation... The generation that sees these signs that are being described here in the 24th chapter, uh, signs that we have yet to see. Uh, These are things that will take place during the great tribulation period. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so, again, Luke says when recording the words of our Savior, when you see these things happen, look up because your redemption draws near. And indeed, when you begin to see things like the abomination of desolation, when you see the plagues that are described in the Revelation that are summarized here in in Matthew 24, verses uh, 4 through 14, when you see these false messiahs who will come and antichrist, when you see in the stars above and in the moon and the sun, all these things happen, you know this is the final generation upon the earth and they will see the second coming of Christ. So that's what he's referring to. There's no contradiction here. This is just an argument from ignorance. And even, um, even uh, you know, scholars who are unbelievers understand that Jesus's prophecy was in reference to the temple. They don't contend with the Western Wall because they know that that was not a part of the temple. Uh, that's just a wall, a retaining wall. 
the pre-construction that was done to make the Temple Mount flat at the top in which the temple would sit. Anyway, good question. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And um, you can also email us at uh, tbl at uh, wagp.net. You know, we've had a couple of questions now about um, uh, people and contradictions in the Bible. I'd like to point a couple of resources. Uh, First of all, uh, there's a book uh, that is uh, entitled How Do We Know the Bible is True by... uh, Ken Ham and uh, uh, his uh, son-in-law, and you have got a a couple of contributing um, chapters in there. Additionally, your series that you did on um, bibliology bibliology has all of those. uh, Yeah, I go through about a hundred alleged contradictions in the Bible. I deal with the more difficult ones. Uh, The one that was raised earlier this morning, I didn't deal with it in the course because it's it's really pretty straightforward. Uh, I deal with the more difficult ones that are are so-called contradictions in the Bible. And so if you call Search the Scriptures, that whole course on bibliology where we deal with uh, inspiration, inerrancy, um, you know, uh, issues uh, of different kinds of translations, everything from paraphrases to literal translations. And we go through a host of different issues. And if you call Search the Scriptures, um, that is available uh, in, I think I did about 40 or 50 messages on Wednesday nights on the subject of the Bible. Indeed. All right. A caller just called. They have had conversations with relatives who say that Christians have a responsibility to address social issues, for example, being active in their communities to help those in need. How do Christians balance social obligation to help others against our Christian need for righteousness? Should we, as a church, go and assist with community projects, or should our main focus be to assemble ourselves and bring the community to the church so that they can hear the gospel? The relatives seem to have some disdain for some Christians because they don't feel they do enough. How does this caller answer these relatives when they bring this up? Well, most of the people who don't feel like the local churches of America are doing enough are what I call those who embrace the social gospel. The social gospel, the, the father of the social gospel in the 19th century, late 19th century, was Walter Rauschenbusch. He was a German theologian, and he basically said that the gospel was not that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, but the gospel was that the good news that Jesus preached is that we should try to reform society and make it a better place. Well, uh, that's not really the gospel, but that's what people are basically saying again. And the social gospel has been resurrected under some new terminology. It's called the emergent church. Guys like Brian McLaren and others, they're, they're teaching the same thing. They deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Rob Bell, all these guys, uh, they're preaching another Jesus. Now, that's not to say that we as Christians don't have a responsibility to care for people who are in need. Um, James speaks about a brother and sister in this case. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says, oh, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you don't give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith without works is dead. The most compassionate people in the world are evangelical born-again Christians. They have done more to meet uh, physical, 
uh, social needs than any other group of people on the face of the earth and in the recorded history of humanity. Uh, All the orphanages, all the hospitals uh, that were started by these people, by Bible-believing Christians, is not by accident. And so, listen, a, a church should indeed be compassionate towards needs in the community. Uh, the scripture says, let us do good to all men. And then he adds, but especially to those of the household of faith. So the place we start are with God's people. You see a brother or sister in need. And I, and I see this all the time fleshed out at Community Bible Church. And it's so wonderful to see how the body of Christ works. I'm just thinking of a lady in our church that recently contracted cancer and she lost her job and then she couldn't pay her rent and between her and her husband, you know, they, they just couldn't make it. And our church family stepped in and have helped them out in the in-between period here and brought meals and, you know, helped them with their bills. And, you know, that that's what God's people do. We have a food pantry right here on our campus. We service some 500 families a month. 30% are only repeats. 70% are new customers, so to speak. And they really come from every realm of life. People who were making $100,000 a few years ago who are making, you know, almost nothing. And they're living on a shoestring because of the economy. And for them to come in and to get some groceries in their hands. And we're also going to tell them about Jesus when they come in as well. So, no, um, it's hard sometimes in some parts of the world to tell someone about Jesus if their stomach is, is empty. And so you want to feed them, but you want to go way beyond feeding them because you don't want to make the earth just a nice place to go to hell from. And there's a lot of people that that's what they do. Uh, They meet social needs, but the most critical essential need is the need of forgiveness. You know, it was said some years ago, I don't know what the current stats are, but World Vision reported that half of the grain stuffs that were in India were being eaten by rats because of the Hindu belief that, you know, rats could be my reincarnated uncle and that we shouldn't kill them. You had starvation in the streets of Calcutta when you had all these foodstuffs being brought in, and yet they were so often were being destroyed. So a false worldview can result in all kinds of problems. But when a person's born again, God enters in, Uh, They are indwelt by the Spirit of God. He begins to renew their mind. He changes their work ethic. He changes the way they think about life. And and things really and truly turn around. Um, So the most compassionate thing we can do is to lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's going to change their life and create in them a compassion. I mean, who, who runs all the crisis pregnancy centers in the country? For the most part, it's evangelical Christians because they care about the unborn. They believe what God says. Who is involved in so much of the adoption programs here internationally and in this country? It's evangelical Christians because they care about little children and having a warm place to stay and a healthy home and an environment in which to live. So it's really a straw man that your relative has constructed against evangelical Christians because not only history but experience today 
uh, teaches otherwise. So we do have a responsibility, but we need to be careful because sometimes Christians can get involved in the community in quote-unquote social programs that restrict your freedom to preach the gospel. And then that's not a good use of your time. It's like if I'm going to give money to someone who's going to feed the hungry, am I going to give it to the Christian Children's Fund or World Vision? Well, I'm going to give it to World Vision because the Christian Children's Fund isn't Christian. You read their doctrinal statement, they say we don't embrace any particular religion and we don't preach any particular message that is religious in tone. They just stole the name because they know how generous evangelical Christians are. It's not by accident that, you know, public TV every year when they come around to their time of raising funds that they start showing, you know, clips about Billy Graham and, you know, the Gaithers and Christian concerts because they know that evangelical Christians are generous and they give. They're just smart. Uh, they, they know what they're doing. Um, so, again, it's a straw man that your, your relative has created and, and um, history proves otherwise. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. A listener in Augusta writes, In Genesis seventeen seventeen, the Bible says that Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then in Luke 1, 18-20, Scripture says, Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Why was God displeased with Zechariah's response and pleased with Abraham's? Well, Abraham goes through a number of tests, and God's building his faith, and, you know, he waits until his body is as good as dead, and, of course, all along, Abraham thought that Ishmael was the son of promise, and he thought that uh, because God hadn't given specificity in terms of the means as of yet, and Abraham, through Sarah's ingenuity, takes Hagar, and he goes into her, and she gives him Ishmael. And he assumes that he is the one that God promised through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And of course, God reveals to him that that's not the case. And it's, it's just, it's, 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 he's not laughing in unbelief. That's what Sarah did. And God rebuked her for it. But she later came around so much so that she makes it into Hebrews 11 for her faith because she believes that God is going to ultimately do what he said. But at first she doesn't. But Abraham's laugh is not a laugh of unbelief. It's a laugh of astonishment. And there's a big difference Uh, as it relates to um, as it relates to. Uh, Zechariah in the temple, his, his statement was a statement of unbelief. Unlike Mary, who asked a similar question, he asked a question like, God, you know, not can you do it, but, you know, you're unable to do it. It's phrased in such a way that it's a statement of unbelief. And so God disciplines him and for the whole pregnancy, he can't say anything. And he's got a lot of time to, to think where Mary's statement is in her question is is different and not in terms of if God's going to do it, but what means will God use to pull it off? 
Um, so two different issues. But again, Abraham's laugh, and that's clear in light of what you read in Romans 4, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. You might want to go back and actually listen to my sermon. It's online on Genesis 7. 1717. And uh, if you go to org and click on the book of Genesis, it will show about 50 sermons I preached in Genesis. And you can just line up the passage and go back and listen to it. And uh, I'll give you a fuller explanation there. But it's a good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, Lisa in Bluffton would like to know your opinion about Christian dating websites. She writes, I'm 30 years old, never been married and would like to meet someone special. I work a full-time job and don't go out really because of going to church, so it's very hard for me to meet people. I almost signed up on ChristianMingle.com, but I just can't in good conscience go through with it without hearing your opinion first in light of the recent decision of the United States government. Uh, Okay, actually, I went into the next Okay, uh, all right, so let me me deal with that first. All right, Um, here's the deal, Um, you know— there have been people who have visited Christian dating websites who have benefited. There was a couple in our church, and if you ask them how they met, they, they met online through one of these Christian websites, and they lined her up, lined him up with a gal. They were living in you know opposite parts of the country. I think he was here in South Carolina, and she was in the Midwest, and God brought them together. So, you know— It has worked for some people, and I can't dismiss that. And there's certainly Christian leaders like James Dobson and others who have endorsed him in years past. So Dr. Dobson, I think after he endorsed one, uh, that particular Christian uh, ministry went south. Here's the challenge is I would just encourage you to be very, very cautious. And as a general rule, I would probably discourage it because there's a lot of people who go onto these websites who have very evil intentions, even the Christian websites. And so because of that, um, you know, you need to be cautious. I, and I know this because I've dealt with these people. I've dealt with them in my office. We, we exercise church discipline on a, on a brother who um, basically was married and presented himself on a Christian website as single uh, to date other women. And so, you know, there's all kinds of... Uh, motivations and evil things that are happening on these websites. And you just need to be very, very, very careful. Um, Again, God's big and he can bring into your life uh, a believer who loves the Lord. And the best place to start is in the church where you get involved and you can meet other born again Christians. That's a good place to start. But I just caution people with a lot of the Christian websites because uh, the the criteria that they're using, even the Christian websites, aren't always the same criteria that God would give in his word. And again, if you have a check in your spirit, that may be God protecting you. The Bible says in Romans 14, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, sometimes there are times in your life where there's just kind of a check. You you just you don't know why, but you just don't think you should proceed. I, I remember trying to help uh, these two new Christians. They were identical twins, and I had led them to Christ at the University of North Carolina, and they came to me, and they felt really guilty, and I said, well, what's the problem? Well, you know, a bunch of the friends, you know, invited us to this movie, and we went, and 
we went to the movie and it had a lot of sexual immorality in it and we just feel like oh you know we've done this awful thing and you know how could we have uh you know maybe avoided this and i said well number one um when they invited you what was your initial thought well my initial thought was maybe we shouldn't go because the movie just by title sounded somewhat questionable I said, well, see, that was God, the Holy Spirit, helping you. He's our helper. He comes alongside. He was trying to help you to avoid, you know, going to that movie. Not to mention, though you don't know the scripture much yet, they had only been saved a few weeks when we had this conversation. There are passages that give us, you know, criteria in terms of uh, what kinds of things that we should watch. Passages like Philippians 4 and verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if any excellence, let your mind dwell on these things. So if it doesn't meet that criteria, then you shouldn't proceed with it. And so what's happening today, and I know this is kind of a, a side side entrance into the question about the principles the same as Christians are filling their minds up with all kinds of garbage and they have no problems with it. And a lot of parents I think would be surprised if they went to their children's Facebook pages and started reading the conversations that they have with other teenagers. And if you've got a teenager in your home, you ought to have access to the Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever other social networks they're using with all the passwords and an opportunity to to look and see whatever is going on. You need to be on top of it. A lot of parents would be shocked to see the kinds of movies their kids are endorsing and encouraging and uh, going to maybe sometimes behind their back. And so the Holy Spirit's guidance is really clouded in their lives. And they don't have a sensitivity to the Spirit of God. But you do. And so whatever is not from faith is sin. And so when in doubt, cut it out. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will create some doubt in your heart. And you don't always know why. I remember years ago, I was a relatively new pastor here at Community Bible Church. And there was a uh, a Marine who uh, kept inviting my children over to his house to play with his children. And I kept uh, refusing uh, his uh, alt- offer. And my boy said to me one day, well, Dad, I, you know, why, why can't we go to his house? And I said, well, number one, I said, I don't know him very well. He's not a member of our church. He just, he goes to another church, but he comes to some of our activities. But I don't know. I just have some questions in my mind whether you guys should go over there. And I I can't tell you why. Well, a short time later, he was arrested for molesting a child. And so God had put that check in my spirit. When in doubt, cut it out. And if you have some severe earnest reservations about using one of these Christian websites. I'm not going to say categorically they're sinful or uh, evil and that people haven't benefited from them because experience would show otherwise. But if you have some real doubts, that's probably God protecting you and wanting to use a different vehicle if it's part of his plan for you to be married in which to bring you uh, a husband. So I appreciate the question and thanks for asking. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller who's waiting. So We do indeed. Yes. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Thanks for calling today. How can I help? I'm trying to go off memory. I think I was reading in Ecclesiastes, I believe it was chapter 3, verse 21, and uh, I believe Solomon is talking about um, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward when he perishes, when the spirit of the 
animal or the beast goes downward. And I'm trying to get some proper understanding. I've, I've heard someone try to give commentary on that and say the animals do have spirits, but it's just not a spirit like we have. And I think I've heard you in the past mention how uh, the original words for soul and spirit can be interchanged. So could, can you help me understand that passage? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question. Um you know, what happens when animals die, you, you, you hate to tell a child that the animal is non-existent. And, and people debate this, and will there be animals in heaven and everything else? Will, you know, my great dog Speckles, has he gone to the, you know, third heaven? Will I meet my dog there someday? Or um, God's not down on animals. God created animals. There are they're an expression of his creative genius, and he gave animals not just for food, but also for companionship and uh, for, uh, I think many times animals are an expression of, uh, they show God's, you know, kind of unconditional love. And you you see some animals who, you know, you ignore, or sometimes people will even mistreat them. And yet the animal comes back and just keeps loving on you and cares about you. And uh, it, 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 it's wonderful to, to see. But as one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and returned to the dust. Um, he's speaking here not of the animal's um, uh, uh, inner person, his soul, like we would say, but of the body of an animal, just like an animal dies and is buried. And we had a little graveyard in our backyard and we had our cat snowball and patch and a couple of rabbits and uh, a couple of dogs buried back there. And it was a great opportunity to teach our children lessons about death. He's not talking about the soul of an animal. Animals are different from people. And that doesn't mean there won't be animals in heaven. Uh, Jesus comes back on a white stallion So he comes back on a horse. Um, So there are some animals in heaven. There are animals during the millennial kingdom. Uh, But I don't think animals die and go home to be with the Lord. God breathed in the man the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And this distinguishes us from the animal world. And this is an important distinction. Because there are people, even Christian people, who spend more time and money an investment in their dog than they do in their next door neighbor. And they don't really care like they should about things that are really important and things that are eternal. I'm not saying to be cruel to an animal. The Bible teaches in Proverbs, uh, I think it's chapter 10, that that's what a wicked person does. A wicked person is cruel to the animals. God's not. Um, Proverbs 10, uh, Proverbs 12 um Verse uh, 10, a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruel. So I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't take care of our animals, but we need to keep them in proper perspective. God breathed in the man the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's why you never see dogs and cats pray or on their face before God worshiping him. Uh, they're created and They have a function and a purpose in some parts of the world. They eat dogs. They don't have them as pets. Uh, So they carry different animals, different values, and different cultures. But the picture in the Bible is they don't go home to be with the Lord. But what Solomon is dealing with is with the body, not not with the soul, so to speak, of the animal. Anyway, I appreciate that question. And we could spend a lot more time on it because uh, 
Solomon uses a, a certain form of hyperbole all the way through the book to, to come home and then to draw a point. And if you draw the point from the hyperbole, then you miss the point. It's much like what Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, don't have love, you know, it profits me nothing. He's not saying that we'll speak in angelic tongues. He's using hyperbole any more than he's saying that a man has all knowledge because only God knows all things. So Solomon does that all the way through Ecclesiastes, and if you don't recognize the writing style that he's using, it becomes a little confusing, and people, especially Jehovah's Witness and others, have built some false doctrine out of it. Let's go to the next question. I think someone's waiting, and let's see if we can respond. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Hello, Dr. Brogy. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Yeah, my granddaughter has a question. Okay. If, if Eve had only eaten from the tree and Adam had not, what would have been the difference? Well, it's a good question. Uh, it's an if question. And so, you know, that's not what happened, obviously. But, you know, Eve fell. And, but in Adam, all die. And so, you know, the fact is, is that as we spoke about just a few weeks ago, Eve was deceived. Adam was not. Uh, what would have happened? Again, it's speculative. It's kind of like the question the Sadducees asked about the man who lost his wife and then married again and lost that wife and married again and married seven times. And, you know, who's, uh, whose wife will she be uh, in, the, in the woman uh, who married over and over and over again? Who, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And so it's somewhat of a speculative question. Um, I, I can't answer it because it's purely speculative. And what I can respond to, though, dogmatically is what did happen. And then Adam all died. And Adam's the head of the race. All don't die in Eve. All die in Adam. Uh, what would have happened? I don't know. The Bible doesn't record it. So it would just be speculation on my part and, you know, not really into answering speculative questions. But I appreciate it. Your granddaughter's thinking and uh, but I would deal with the facts, what did happen, how it unfolded, and what are the results today. All right, let's go to the next one. Speculative questions are unending, and this is what Paul talks about in First uh, and Second Timothy, and even briefly deals with it in Titus, about this was an issue they were dealing with in the uh, first century, all these speculative questions that came into the realm of fables and myths. And Paul says, listen, the man of God just needs to stay away from that because it's endless and it's really nonsensical. I'm not saying this caller or this grandson or granddaughter is being nonsensical. They're asking an honest question. But you can spend all your time in the speculative realm. And Paul tells to Timothy, it's a waste of time, so don't do it. So anyway, so I would go right to the New Testament and take direct application out of the pastoral epistles. Now, how many angels can fit on the head of a pen uh, to ask a question from the middle angels? Who cares? Anyway, let's go to the next one. All right. In light of the recent decision of the United States government to allow women in combat, what does the Bible say about this issue? Well, God's word would would be against women in con in combat. I didn't say women in the military per se, but women in combat. Um, in Numbers chapter one, it says, "Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month and the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their fathers, by their households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from whom 20 years old and upward, 
who is able to go out to war in Israel. So God makes it very clear in the census. It's based on every male, not every isha, but every ish, every man. Uh, It's not a generic word here for mankind, but it's a specific word here using of the male gender. And so God, when he speaks of those who will go out into the military, he's speaking of men. Later on in the same book, let me just turn there to Numbers uh, chapter 31. And let me see here, verse um, verse 25, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you and Eleazar are the priests and the heads of the father's household of the congregation. Take account of the booty that was captured, both of man and animal. And again, it's repeated in verse 37. Why? Because only men are involved in the war. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when Moses um, recaps at the end of 40 years, uh, the law of Deuteros is second, nomos is law, and so Deuteronomy is given actually a Greek title. Remember, the titles, book titles, are not inspired. Uh, the text is, but it's like the chapter and verse divisions. They were added later. And in our English Bibles, we go by the, we follow the Septuagint, and we have the Greek titles that we've retained for the first five books of the Bible And in Deuteronomy 20 and in verse, uh, let's see here, 5, the officers also shall speak to the people saying, who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And who is the man? And again, it's the word is ish. It's not the word that is in Hebrew generic for mankind, like in Greek anthropos, meaning men or women or people, who is literally the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit. Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man begin to use its fruit. And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. And so, again, God's really clear here. We could also look at Joshua chapter 1, In verse 4, there is a clear assumption that only men will fight in battle. Joshua 1 in verse 4, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. And then he goes on in verse 14, and he describes the defense of this great land that they are going to take. And uh, he says in verse um, 14, your wives, your little ones, your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But you, referring to the men in the context, shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them. So again, only men are engaged in battle. Now, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. So God gave us these Old Testament records to establish an eternal principle. Men are those who are the protectors. That's what Ephesians also establishes. We are the protectors, and we are to defend our nation and our country. Women shouldn't be out there in combat with a gun uh, defending a country. Men should. That's what men do. Anyway, it's a good question. We're out of time today. Hope you have a great day. God bless you.